Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 16th of July 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, apologies, we're a couple of seconds late there, but anyway, let's get straight on with it. And we're going to lead off with this article that was in the BBC uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, COVID medical staff distressed by third wave. Now, of course, we've got to keep this in the context of the fact that uh, uh, the UK column has been demonstrating for the last several weeks um, that the hospitals have absolutely been full with people that are not COVID patients. Um, and so uh, uh, what are medical staff distressed about? Well, uh, this was a question that uh, uh, this person on Twitter, uh, Tony, uh, James Townsend, uh, seemed pretty uh, motivated to discover because uh, he pushed out a Twitter thread which I think is really excellent, Patrick. And uh, so he started off by saying, shocking BBC and NHS propaganda uncovered. You're not going to believe this one, or maybe you will, but bear with me. I had to triple check my figures on this just to reassure myself it was true. And what's more, this is likely to be happening every single day. So he linked to that uh, BBC article. And uh, uh, the thread followed on by saying it featured a segment on the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, BBC East and Cumbria, as well as being one of the top stories online. Um, I've no way of calculating the audience reach, but we can safely assume it was into the millions nationwide and regionally. The online headline told us the medical staff were distressed by a third wave. The story begins with a war analogy from Dr. Catherine Monaghan, a respiratory consultant who claimed we are planning for war and praying for peace. So it sounds serious, he says. Uh, and he goes on, Dr. Monaghan, well, that was not the half of it. Dr. Monaghan paints a bleak picture of exhausted and distressed staff and critically unwell patients. Uh, I cannot quite believe we're back at this stage again. It's really worrying, she says. And uh, Tony says, well, crikey, this is from a doctor, so it must be true. Um, and it goes on, PIM reports, Hugh PIM, this is the BBC's journalist, reports that there are 22 COVID patients in that specific hospital, five of whom are intensive care. Uh, he says that the number has increased sharply from just six in a single week. Uh, coupled with that, he talks about surging cases and stretching services. Grim, grim, grim. Uh, Tony goes on, the mayor of Middlesbrough, Andy Preston, uh, says rates are ballooning. Uh, this thing is spreading like wildfire across, across the whole region. Uh, Chris Tullock, medical director for uh, North Tees Hospital Trust, uh, said we are coping, but I would say we're just coping. Disaster imminent, says Tani. Uh, and then he makes, he makes his point. We also know that Britain is testing at a ridiculously high rate, more than the rest of Europe combined. And finally, we also know peer-reviewed research suggests that up to 75% of PCR tests can give misleading results. Um, so what about deaths? Isn't this a measure of a surge? Um, well, that's a very good question, but he shows on the graphic there the number of tests, daily tests being run. And Patrick, uh, that is a pretty staggering uh, graph because it um, shows that the UK is what doing at least four times the number of tests of France, uh, Austria, uh, and so on down the list. Italy doing a fraction of what we're doing as, as are the rest of the countries. Mike, is it safe to say if this is a global chart here? No, no, this is Europe. Well, I'm gonna show, I'll show a global, I'll show a more global picture in a minute. But, but so, so Britain is doing more than the entire Europe combined. Yes, is that right? it, it certainly looks that way based yeah. on, now those statistics have come from uh, our world in data, uh, which is a reputable uh, source for, uh, for data, for official data anyway. And uh, for uh, pandemics. 
scaremongering as well. Yes, indeed. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty stark graph. But anyway, Tiny goes on. Uh, I logged into NHS England and headed to COVID-19 daily deaths to find uh, data on North Tees and Hartlepool NHS Foundation Trust. For context, for context, the trust provides services to 400,000 people across two main hospital sites and three smaller community sites, 275 million pound turnover, turnover and 5,500 staff. Uh, here uh, they are in, uh, online, 139 of the enormous Excel sheets under tab four, deaths by trust. I scrolled along until I got to the most recent data listed, which was Tuesday the 13th of July, so only three days ago. To my surprise, deaths, zero. I tabbed to the next date, zero. The next, zero. And he goes on, in fact, according to NHS England data, which you can freely check, the North Tees and Hartlepool NHS Foundation Trust hasn't reported a single COVID-19 death for 76 consecutive days, going right back to the 28th of April, 2021. Let me repeat, no deaths for 76 days. Uh, he goes on, on the 20th of April, there was sadly one death. Uh, you then have to scroll for another 13 days until the 15th of April to find another one death. In other words, two COVID-19 deaths in two months uh, or one a month. As I said, I had to check this several times to be sure, and I'm 100% sure. Uh, an NHS hospital trust plastered across national and regional television and framed as being rushed off its feet and dealing with a third COVID surge has actually experienced not a single fatality from coronavirus in 76 consecutive days. It's almost too bonkers to comprehend. Uh, added to that across the whole Northeast and Yorkshire region, uh, there were just two deaths recorded on the 13th of July and two the day before. Hardly a crisis, hardly a wildfire spreading across the region and hardly the hallmarks of a deadly pandemic. In fact, it's not even news. Um, maybe Hugh Pym and the Trust would care to answer. Uh, why did you admit to, omit to mention no deaths in 76 days? If you can only just cope with dealing with zero deaths, are you fit for purpose? Uh, someone should probably refer this matter to the BBC's disinformation unit. And that was the end of the thread. Now, he makes some um, absolutely fantastic points because, in fact, that type of uh, situation is reflected across the country. I know that in uh, Plymouth in the southwest, it's, it's a very similar picture. Um, now, uh, as we've said several times in the last couple of months on this program, NHS trusts are overwhelmed. Uh, many hospitals around the country absolutely fully occupied. Plymouth uh, Derriford Hospital recently uh, issued an alert because of the levels of occupancy. These are not COVID patients. Uh, these are, well, what are they? They are certainly acute uh, problems. Um, are they basically the NHS saving up patients for the last 14 or 15 months? Are they adverse reactions? We don't know the answer to this question. It could likely be both. It, very likely that it's both. Um, but let's look at a more global picture, uh, also from our world in data. And let's put this, this graph up. So this is daily COVID-19 tests per thousand people. And you can see that the United Kingdom, miles ahead of Portugal, India, United States, South Af Africa, South Korea, Mexico, in terms of the number of people that are being tested on a daily basis. And when you test, Patrick, using PCR or lateral flow, whenever you've got a low incidence of a virus, what happens? You get false positives, Mike. Do you? Yes. Amazing. It it's kind of goes with the territory with the old PCR test. So, uh, you know, the UK is breaking all global records. So if this was the Olympics uh, for COVID testing, Britain will be bringing home all the golds. 
Yes, indeed. So it's hardly a surprise then that we're seeing headlines like this in The Guardian. Summer chaos predicted as 1.6 million people in England told to isolate in a week. 1.6 million people told to isolate. Um, and what do we have? We have uh, people not going to work, uh, companies suffering as a result. And most of these are what? They're false positives. But it gets even better, Patrick, uh, as we can see from this. This is from the Daily Telegraph. Neighbors pinged through walls by app. Well, we knew that the coronavirus had superpowers, Mike, but this is really a whole nother level. This is X-Men level for Coroni, Mike. I mean, this literally going, passing through walls. Is, it, is Coroni passing through the walls? Keep talking. Is Coroni passing through the walls, Mike? Or is, 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 is there a problem with the app? That's, that's the number one question. Yes. Okay, well, um, it's not the, only the number one question. It's also a, something which is confusing Coroni. He's very confused. He's very confused. He says, can I pass through walls? Or is this something else? This is a problem with the NHS uh, Bluetooth uh, system on the app. What a total debacle. Uh, what a total debacle, indeed. Um, so let's move on to this one then. Uh, winter viruses and COVID-19 could push NHS to breaking point. It warns new report. This is from the Academy of Medical Sciences. Uh, a, a lethal triple mix of COVID-19, influenza, and the respiratory, uh, respiratory uh, sin I can't pronounce that, it's RSV anyway. Uh, would push an already depleted NHS to breaking point this winter unless we act now. Um, so they're saying that uh, this is based on a survey from the Academy of Medical Sciences, which suggests that flu and RSV, uh, hospital admissions, and uh, uh, the resulting death toll could be twice as high as compared to a normal year, something that may coincide with a surge in coronavirus infections. Uh, Professor Stephen Holgate, chair of the expert advisory group that conducted the report, uh, mentioned four main challenges uh, with respect to this. Uh, he said uh, we're dealing with a third wave of COVID-19 and multiple outbreaks of the, uh, and the NHS has got to catch up with the backlog that's accumulated over the last 15 months or so. And that's going to be a real challenge. Uh, and he said that the NHS was already under pressure. It's likely not to be able to cope with these winter challenges going forward. Uh, he said that it could create worse, uh, the, the ongoing pandemic could create worse physical and mental health uh, problems within the UK population. Society as a whole will have uh, learned from the last 15 months that it isn't acceptable that we had all these respiratory vir viruses washing around in the winter and nearly closing our NHS. If there were things we could do to prevent transmission, we should do that, even if it means wearing masks and respecting each other's space, he pointed out. So 60,000 deaths is what they seem to be uh, predicting. But what is this about? Uh, in fact, it's nothing to do with winter respiratory viruses. It's all to do with NHS waiting lists reaching 13 million people. Yeah, right. So um, we will move along. Um, let's, uh, let's move along to this one, Patrick, and uh, Finla Coffee. Finla Coffee, this is a, a local a story here. Are we okay on audio? No, we're not okay on audio, so I'm not entirely clear what the problem is. Um, look, we're going to have to uh, call a halt to this and uh, just see what we can resolve the Technical audio problem here. Technical break. Yeah. Okay, we're back. Apologies for that.
Um, right, so let's uh, move on, Patrick, to uh, the a local story, Plymouth's uh, Finla Coffee. Uh, this is a coffee shop. We have mentioned it on the program before, uh, but they've been in trouble with the, uh, well, with the council for what? Well, it's, it is a local story, Mike, but it's actually, it's gone national uh, as well. You might have seen this in the national press as well. These are the two owners of this local coffee shop here, uh, Deanna Yates and Michael uh, Pendleberry. And uh, they've really had the system come crashing down on them, the full force uh, of the law, Mike. They've been fined uh, for violations uh, relating to the uh, corona virus uh, restrictions, uh, one of the many drafts of the coronavirus restrictions, because it changes every month, doesn't right, it? Indeed, yes. Right, so we think this is draft number four, but we're not sure of the law. The law is constantly fluid and changing. But uh, back to the story, Mike, let's take a look at the details uh, of this. And so what's, what's actually happened here? Take a look at this. The firm itself uh, was found guilty of failing to close and cease selling food and drink and failed without reasonable excuse to close their premises to breaches of the health protection coronavirus restrictions uh, regulations of 2020. Now, this all started back in November, Mike, and just to tell you where they're at, the judge has fined the firm and each of the owners 10,000 pounds and ordered Finla Coffee to pay 8,221 and Pendleberry and Yates 2,000 each towards the court and council investigation costs. So the council mounted an expensive private investigation apparently, plus victim surcharge totaling more than 42,000 pounds. So it's quite a lot for a small local coffee shop that probably only turns over a few thousand pounds a, a month, a week if they're lucky. Right, and, and I mean, this is a very important point. This was a, a private prosecution brought by the council. It was not a crime prosecution service prosecution. Um, so is the, is the council legitimately in a position to bring these, uh, um, these um, cases? Well, if, if, if they have the right to appeal uh, in due process, that, that's an argument that's going to be made. And we're told that a number of serious legal professionals uh, in the country have taken an interest in this case. And so we might hear announcements uh, from the owners in terms of their legal defense. More on that in a second. But just back to the, uh, the case itself here, the judge had fined them uh, the, these amounts, which are substantial uh, here. But uh, the deputy uh, district judge, uh, Hine, demanded that they pay forthwith. If they don't pay, it is, uh, don't pay it there will be enforcement proceedings, which will ultimately if it's willful and neglectful and I'm sitting, they will be going to prison. So he is, he is threatening that if he is in front of them and they haven't paid, they will be going to prison. Yes, that's, that's what's been said here. So this does sound very personal, doesn't it? Uh, certainly from all the various parties attacking the owners uh, in this business. For what is, well, we'll look at what the original problem was to begin with, and it might shock some, some people as well. So and I might add here the... Uh, Deputy District Judge called the owners, uh, accused them of kind of pursuing a local celebrity uh, cause through this uh, this stand, and he sees them as a risk to public health. Uh -huh. So that's quite a serious uh, allegation there. But you know, it's not surprising to a lot of people because people are banding about this. Everyone's a risk to public health if they don't wear their mask or uh, if they dare not to uh, take the vaccine or all these various. 
new restrictions and requirements that are coming in to judge whether you are safe yeah. uh, as an individual uh, or as a business here. And the uh, the, the owners were originally fined 3000 by the council, but could not pay those fines, Mike, uh, which were issued uh, two fixed penalty notices. Uh, they had no option but to challenge them because they didn't have the money uh, to pay them. So again, those those fines, and bear in mind, the background of this, Mike, is across the country, it's been kind of broadly ruled uh, from the legal, uh, top legal bodies that all of these fines are basically, you know, either unconstitutional, unlawful, unlawful or some, yeah. something yeah. like this. So they're all being dropped, but this is looks like a real vendetta, 42,000 pounds. And let's hear what they have to say here. The owner's calling it an unlawful prosecution, and, and in that hearing, the deputy district judge issued a total of 42,000 fines, costs, and victim surcharges, which is ridiculous, unlawful, and may as well be 42 million pounds in proportion to you know how much financial uh, uh, ability they have to repay Mike. And uh, they added that the court and the council went ahead with the trial at Exeter, magistrate's court in the full knowledge that none of the directors could attend. Uh, this was from Plymouth Live, uh, this, this statement here. And we applied uh, for an adjournment three times over the few weeks before the hearing and yet heard no response from either the court or the council. We were also denied having any witnesses uh, and from filing a defense statement. Uh, so then both directors at the time were summoned on the 22nd of April after the council had confirmed in court that they would not be sent a summons. So to do this was a clear abuse of process and one of the many points that will be, uh, that we will highlight during our legal challenges. This is a statement from the business here. Uh, and so uh, what was it that the council objected to in the first place? Well, it's a, quite an amazing story, Mike. There, so I think it, because they were uh, allowing uh, some of the staff apparently to exercise their right to, for an exemption on masks, this attracted a lot of attention right. uh, from some of the uh, people at the council. And so then you had a case where Plymouth Live took an interest in this, the local media outlet. I think they're owned by Reach. Is that right? That's right. Reach. So Reach, Plymouth Live, and then the council and the police uh, sort of were milling about and took an interest in this very small business uh, that seemed to be somewhat rebelling uh, in, in their eyes anyway against the sort of, you know, what was effectively a, a type, not a mask mandate, but it pretty much was by, by fiat a mask mandate. Now, what you read out there suggested that they were expected to close, but in fact, at that point, uh, coffee shops were allowed to remain open for uh, obviously, nobody was allowed to go in and sit down in the place, but they were allowed to open for takeaway. So two two fixed penalty notices that started all this. You ask what started. Those were the two fixed penalty notices, I believe, on the 6th and the 7th of November. And apparently it's because uh, some customers were sitting down. Uh, elderly, uh, disabled customer, uh, one of them. And so photographs were taken by the investigation team. And these were unidentified persons. They weren't eating, apparently waiting for their bowl of soup mm -hmm. in one case. And uh, the other one with an electric wheelchair, we're told. Okay. Now, obviously, this will all have to come out uh, in a fair hearing. Hopefully, they get a fair hearing uh, on this. But just uh, if you want to get more information here, this is a GoFundMe page set up by uh, a friend of uh, uh, Deanna uh, and 
and her partner there and so help Finla win their fight. Uh, so this is Lucy Larkin, friend of the family apparently, but uh, we're told that there'll probably be another crowdfunding campaign uh, coming up when this sort of reaches its uh, uh, legal traction as it were. But I, I want to point out something that's just a bit bizarre here with regards to the Plymouth Live coverage. Look at this. Just below the headline, you see this. The cafe's GoFundMe site has been renewed with a statement from the owners blaming the council, Plymouth Live, and hate-filled locals for their prosecution. And you can go and read the statement for yourself uh, on the GoFundMe page, but it seems like Plymouth Live has taken a particular offense mm. to the fact that they have been mentioned uh, in the sort of complaints by these business owners, Mike. Right. So the media seems to have gone on the attack on this and take a look at this when the video comes up you see this pop right across the top of the video on the story page two women have been spotted going into finla coffee while not wearing masks i mean it's almost like a daub up culture <laughs> going on here it is just the most bizarre thing so it does seem like that there are a lot of vested interests and powers that are really targeting and trying to bring down these businesses but not just the business trying to bring the owners down individually threatening to imprison them. I mean, for the initial providence of the charges are just almost, you know, less than negligible. Yes. But it's being blown up into this big public health crisis. It's absolutely incredible. So if you uh, want to take uh, more information and maybe some interest in, in this uh, case, you go ahead and look at their GoFundMe page and sort of follow the story uh, as well. In the local and we press. will be reporting more in due course. Yes. Um, now, a lot of people uh, have been pushing this document around from Public Health Scotland, Public Health Scotland COVID-19 statistical report as at the 21st of June, 2021. Um, but uh, the report itself hasn't been being pushed around, just the tables, the two tables that are of interest to people, and it's table 15, uh, which is uh, entitled number of deaths that have occurred within 28 days following a dose one COVID-19 vaccination. Um, and as you can see on that table, for all ages, they're saying that the observed number of deaths of people passing away within 28 days of a first dose of vaccination is 3,275. Um, and then the next table, the number of deaths that occurred within 28 days following dose two of the COVID-19 vaccination for all ages is 2,247. So that's something around 6,000 in total. Um, and many people saying, well, um, nobody's talking about this. There are thousands, you know, thousands of people dying within 28 days of a COVID vaccination. And, well, Patrick, I have to say, you know, I, I understand why uh, people are drawing this conclusion, because, of course, from the beginning, um, whether or not people have actually had COVID or any symptoms, uh, the government narrative has been that if you've died within 28 days of a COVID test, you're therefore a COVID death. Uh, and um, I can see why people would be drawing the, the same conclusion in this case, but it's not quite uh, correct because in order to get the, the context of this, uh, we've got to read the text that comes just before the two tables. Uh, and that says this, using the five-year average monthly death rate, death rate by age, band, and gender from 2015 to 2019 for comparison, 8,718 deaths would have been expected amongst the vaccination population within 28 days of receiving their COVID vaccination. Uh, and the uh, Scottish Government, uh, Public Health Scotland then goes on to say, this means that the observed number of deaths is lower than expected compared with mortality rates for the same, same time period in previous years. 
So it's not correct to assume that those 6,000 deaths are in some way linked to the vaccine, but it's also not correct to claim that they're not. It's certainly not correct for Public Health Scotland to try to claim that the vaccine has resulted in a reduction in mortality. That is not the case. And the reason it's not the case is, of course, um, uh, much of the uh, so-called, which I'm, I'm going to say again, and I know you agree with me on this, the, this horrible term, dry tinder, uh, has already uh, died in the past 15 months. So people that were that are you know close to to the end of their lives, um, they've already gone. And so um, you know comparing uh, mortality at this particular point to the last to, to certainly up to tw uh, 2019 isn't necessarily uh, the correct thing to do, or at least you uh, you can't necessarily read too, too much into it. What this highlights to me, Patrick, more than anything else, is the complete. Um, nonsense of um, the statistics that are being published by uh, the statistics organizations, Public Health England, even the ONS, um, because it's really hard to get context between what's happened in the past, what's happening now. It's really hard to get contact, context between uh, the numbers of people that are dying and what are they dying of, and can you actually correlate deaths to a particular event, either a COVID vaccination or a COVID uh, infection? It's practically impossible to get a proper picture of this. And so it's probably not the right thing to, to jump on numbers that are published in these documents uh, without you know, a significant amount of extra work to try to understand what they, what they mean. Well, the bottom line, Mike, is that uh, with regards to statistics and numbers and running policy based on stats constantly, this is what technocrats do, that door swings both ways. Mm -hmm. So like you said correctly, Mike, the government will use the statistics to say that their program is working, that the vaccines are effective and bring us on the road to freedom, et cetera, et cetera. But by the same token, uh, skeptical members of the public who don't maybe trust the government's claims there uh, will also use those same stats to, uh, to draw some stark conclusions. The answer, of course, as you laid out, is that it's possible that... Uh, both could be wrong, both could be correct, but there is zero granular investigation going on. The government should be funding studies and looking at this, looking at all these cases. Are they genuine diagnostics? Um, are these real COVID cases? What are the comorbidities? All these things. The money, the resources should be spent on that. But what we have is the problem. Politicians are not interested in the truth. They do not want to know the truth. They don't want to know the granular detail, and they surely don't want the public to know what the granular details and contexts are with all behind all of these statistics. Because if they do that, then they'll have to start doing informed policy based on the reality of the situation and not just cooking the books on the numbers and then shoving policy down the pipeline, which is what has been happening for the last 16 months straight. Just to add a little bit to that, Patrick, let's just add a bit of context on this. Just think about the numbers here. Uh, £30 billion spent on track and trace, test and trace, whatever you want to call it, which is now resulting in 1.6 million people being pinged and told to stay at home. So that's having a knock-on effect on economy. Once again, it's affecting people's holiday plans. These people are not COVID positive. There are not 1.6 million people COVID positive in this case. So £30 billion spent on that, £1.6 billion spent on the propaganda campaign. 
you could fund an extra NHS on that on that quantity of money. You could you could run a parallel health service, right? <laughs> and and so you're saying the the research isn't being done. The government is claiming massive success because of this fantastic uh, vaccination program where they were able to, in parallel, run all kinds of stuff in parallel and get vaccines out the door inside six months. But there is no money being spent on actually testing the claims of the vaccine companies, actually testing the efficacy of the vaccines, actually testing the risks of the vaccines and giving us proper information where we can make proper informed decisions. Or the accuracy of the tests. Correct. So lots of money being spent to pursue a, a narrative and a policy, no money being spent on actual analysis of what's going on around us. This is the danger of te technocracy, and that's exactly where we're headed right now. Right. So uh, we were talking about PCR tests and what happens with PCR tests if you're testing uh, in effectively when there's no virus around. Uh, let's have a look at this. Now, this is from a few months ago, um, but uh, I thought it was worth putting on screen here because they're talking about, this is a fact check from Reuters. PCR testing and viral genetic sequencing serve different purposes. Now, we're not going to talk about uh, uh, the actual subject of the of the, the article, we want to take a quote that they've quoted Public Health England uh, in this article, and I wanted to take that quote, and, and, and we can just have a quick discussion about it, Patrick, because here's what it said. Uh, a spokesperson for Public Health England previously told Reuters, molecular diagnostic tests such as real-time PCR are the gold standard methods of identifying individuals with an active viral infection, such as SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19 disease, in their respiratory tract. These tests are rapid and produce results in real time. Do you believe that statement? <laughs> well, you know. No, right. So they go on to say, it is important to note that detecting viral material by PCR does not indicate that the virus was fully intact and infectious. I'm going to put the previous slide back on again just to show, sorry, just to, to, uh, to, to reiterate this again. This is the gold standard for identifying individuals with an active viral infection. That's the paragraph before. The paragraph after says, it's important to note that PCR does not indicate that the virus is fully intact and infectious. How can they have it both ways? They can't, is the answer, i.e. able to cause infection in other people. So if that's a gold standard, then we're stuffed straight away. The isolation of infectious virus from positive individuals requires virus culture methods. These methods can only be conducted in laboratories with specialist containment facilities and are time-consuming and complex. I think in that those two paragraphs, that statement from Public Health England to Reuters, we have everything we need to know about PCR tests. But Reuters is giving double speak, but yet you still have the truth in here. Yes. And so that's on the record. And so that's a, what, is that a fact checker? That's a Reuters fact checker. Okay. So sticking with fact checkers, Patrick, let's just briefly have a look at this organization, factcheck.org. This is the United States organization, of course. But they are one of the main uh, fact checkers uh, doing the rounds at the moment. And you can see on their front page there this morning, the facts and gaps on the origin of coronavirus. That's the, talking about lab leak. Uh, CDC data thus far shows COVID-19 vaccination safe during pregnancy. Well, I think we threw some light on that on Monday's program. Uh, but let's have a look at this page. And thanks to the person who sent this through to me. So uh, our funding, um, so they talk about their funding and they've got some lists of donors here 
Uh, well, it's first of all, it's owned by the Annenberg Foundation. We'll come on to that in a minute. So they have funded them uh, in the last quarter to the tune of $282,000. Uh, Facebook, they're getting a significant amount of money from. Uh, and then we've got the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Does the word Johnson remind you of anything? It does. It sounds very much like one of the names in a big pharmaceutical company. Yes, no, it's a, it's a relatively small amount of money, $50,000 in a quarter. Uh, but uh, we also received, they said, $53,501 from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. SciCheck's uh, COVID-19 vaccination project is made possible by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the, funds, the, the views of the foundation. So that should make you feel comfortable because they're independent. But nonetheless, they're receiving money from Johnson & Johnson's foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course, Johnson & Johnson has an interest in this. And therefore, that, this must be a conflict of interest. So they're doing vaccine fact checks, but they're getting money from the vaccine industry. Is that right? Uh, it doesn't end there because, as I said, they are owned by this organization, the Annenberg Foundation, um, who have received money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. Wow. Okay. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that is effectively big pharma because the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation subsidized all of the R&D for all of the COVID vaccines, all the main ones, right? No, again, in terms of uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, grants, it wasn't a huge amount of money. I think in total, $250,000 or only so. Only a quarter of a only million. Only a quarter of a million. But, you know, still, it's money from that industry. So mm -hmm. how do you maintain your independence? No, well, the answer is they don't. So this whole thing is a total... Daisy chain, Mike. Uh, a total, the whole fact-checking thing is a complete scam. What it is, it's the establishment under the guise of the fake news crisis a couple of years ago launched all these fact-checking organizations. And they're there for one reason and one reason only, to gaslight readers and to gaslight the population and to herd people away from any questions or legitimate inquiries or skepticism or challenges to anything that the establishment is putting out. So the fact checkers are like Wikipedia, basically, but they're sort of out and about doing stuff. And they're partnering with all of the Silicon Valley companies who are in touch with government, Mike. And we'll, we'll talk more about how the Silicon Valley firms are working directly with government to censor things that they find harmful against yeah. the pandemic narrative. In a minute, yes. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Please do join us there if you possibly can, because we do need your support uh, and that would be very much appreciated. But uh, also uh, share the material on the various platforms. Uh, we're on brand YouTube as well. We're live streaming on brand YouTube as well. Also on Rumble, BitChute and Odyssey. Um, and uh, so please do join us. And Patrick, um, T-shirts, Yes, well, you know, we're going to extend this offer just a little bit longer, Mike, here. This is a particularly popular t-shirt, loving the old normal, and on the back it says, we're all essential. We've just got some stock left on the UK Column store. Uh, if you go to UK Column community and you go to the shop, we're going to extend this for, for a couple more weeks. This is the last round of stock right. that we've got, so uh, we, we don't plan to continue. So if you want to get your hands on this shirt is the ultimate shirt in terms of protests because it will absolutely trigger the new normals loving the old normal and everyone's essential on the back so uh, it's a great way you can uh, help us but also get out there and make a real statement it's an awesome icebreaker uh, as well yes. when you're sort of out and about a great conversation starter so unless they uh, are partial to the world economic forum then they might 
they might view you with hostility. Yeah, possibly. But possibly. Hey, you know. Well, there you go. You can't be friends with everyone. I no, guess. indeed. Uh, but uh, you will be friends with everyone if you do head to Parliament Square on Monday, uh, Monday the nineteenth of July. Uh, lots of. Uh, uh, momentum building behind this, lots of organizations getting involved. Um, so uh, uh, 12 p.m. start at Parliament Square. Uh, well, this particular advertisement saying conditions of entry, no masks, no social distancing, no track and trace, no testing, and so on. So, uh, uh, But that's looking like it's going to build into something uh, quite important. It does. There's a lot of chatter online about this Monday at Parliament Square, Mike. So it looks like it's going to be a pretty big, just based on what we've seen on Facebook, uh, and Twitter and the major social media platforms. It's on a Monday too, so yes. this isn't like a weekend out March. Uh, this is like on a Monday, so it seems like um, you know. Because Monday's supposed to be Freedom Day. Monday is uh, Freedom Day, or so we're told. Uh, is it going to be Freedom Day, mm. or is this a bait and switch? Only if we demand it. It well, well, we'll talk about that. But if you want to know what the bait and switch might look like, uh, let's go look at what's being. Uh, said and happening in France at the moment here. This is Emmanuel Macron uh, this week, uh, the day before Bastille Day. Talk about the cheek of it. Uh, Macron takes to the media here and announces uh, his mandatory vaccinations for care home workers, but a, a kind of pretty massive vaccine passport push uh, and really almost threatening people that they won't be able to go to cafes they won't be able to go to bars and things like this unless they get the new vaccine passport. So the get out and get your vaccine uh, was the call by Macron. He's going for 100%, 100% vaccination rate uh, in France. So uh, obviously there was a little bit of a pushback uh, against this and it didn't take long. Uh, the people in France didn't ask for permission uh, to demonstrate, did they? Uh, no, they were straight out. So uh, Reuters are reporting protests in France against COVID-19 uh, health pass rules. Uh, and we got a little bit of video here. So, uh, you know, that was uh, uh, quite a, not quite the same uh, atmosphere as in London, but nonetheless, people making their point. Well, we saw in Lyon, in Marseille, in Paris, and in Toulouse, and a number of other uh, cities around France, Mike, you saw thousands and hundreds of thousands in some cases. So collectively, this could be in the millions nationally, the people that came out. And so it, it, it looks like it's also merging a little bit with the Yellow Vest yes. movement. And that's something that we noticed uh, as well. So clearly, they're very clear on the issue, the people in France. This is a very broad spectrum uh, crowd as well, much broader, in fact, uh, than the Yellow Vest movement. And that's what a lot of people have commented on from France that we spoke to. But the, the police behavior looking just like the yellow vest with the tear gas and, and aggressiveness. Yeah, they're not going to endear uh, a lot of compliance uh, by doing that. So if this is the way it's going to be, you could see something kicking off in France, Mike, that might sort of be similar to what we saw with the yellow vest movement. So that's something that uh, certainly is going to rock uh, the, the the French political system, if if that continues. Yes. Um, so uh, what's uh, Joe Biden been up to? Joe Biden is just busy prosecuting his war on normality. Uh, there's no other way to describe it, actually. So the White House is getting very, very aggressive on this issue of vaccinations. So as you know, there's a number of people in the United States, a number of states as well, that have very low vaccination rates. So it's about 50% or a little bit more than 50% of the country have had their, quote, second doses. 
if you believe the official statistics, of course. So uh, what's happening? The government's doubling down on uh, a, a going after people. The, we, we talked last week about the door-to-door -door strike teams mm -hmm. that the White House spokesperson is uh, talking about there. That's caused a massive backlash as well. Right. Now the White House and the Democrats are saying this is political, that uh, Republicans are, 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 are anti-vaxxers and they're only doing this, only doing this to oppose the administration because that's because they're, they're bad Republicans and Trumpers, basically. But is that really the case? Well, of, of course it's not. Listen to this uh, statement by Jen Psaki, White House spokesperson. I don't know where to start, but we'll talk about it afterwards. Uh, with these social media platforms uh, and those uh, engagements typically happen through members of our senior staff, but also members of our COVID-19 team. Uh, given as Dr. Murth Murthy uh, conveyed, uh, this is a big issue of misinformation specifically on the pandemic. In terms of actions, Alex, that uh, we have taken or we're working to take, I should say, from the federal government, uh, we've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. We're working with doctors and medical professionals to connect uh, to connected medical experts with popular with popular who are popular with their audiences with uh, with accurate information and boost trusted content. So we're helping get trusted content out there. We also created the COVID nineteen the COVID Community Corps to get factual information into the hands of local messengers. And we're also investing, uh, as you all have seen, in the presidents, the vice presidents, and Dr. Fauci's time in meeting with. Where do I start? Uh, disinformation, uh, working with the Surgeon General's office to track disinformation on social media, working with popular TV doctors uh, as to post trusted content. So if you're a popular TV doctor and you're pushing vaccines on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry, as you have been for your whole career on TV, pushing drugs, okay, then you're a trusted content. Uh, messenger, according to the White House. I mean, the level of, th this is propaganda on a level that we've never seen before, but then you have the sort of the attack by the state uh, that's just reminiscent of, you know, a Soviet style of this kind of unified messaging and unified state and media, all one single message. So they, they, they want to get, uh, as Biden said, needles in people's arms. A needle in every American's arms. I don't know where to start here. I mean, this is un-American on a level, an unconstitutional on a level that no one's ever seen before. But this is what she said, Mike, here. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook that spread disinformation. So the government is now telling Facebook which posts they call problematic. Well, look, Patrick, you're uh, rightly flagging this up. The United States, of course, much bigger country than the UK and does things on a bigger scale. But of course, this is exactly the infrastructure that we have in the UK. We've got the digital culture, media and sport uh, disinformation unit. We've got the rapid response unit in the cabinet office. We've got 77 brigade. We've got 13 signals. We've got a whole bunch of sections of the British government trawling social media, looking for posts to be taken down, flagging those posts. We've got, as you know, people linked by some to uh, UK intelligence services, editing posts on Wikipedia, for goodness mm -hmm. sake. So 
you know, we're seeing this model, this framework that the UK has built, being now being appearing in the United States. It's certainly appearing in the European Union as well. It started here. But forget about even your 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 government agencies there, Mike. If the U.S. government tells Facebook what posts are problematic or disinformation, they can tell that about a British post, a U.S. post, yes. an Italian post. So the censorship that goes on at the government level now in the United States cascades globally. So you could be posting factual information about adverse reactions or anything. We already have Facebook's whistleblowers who came forth uh, two, two months ago and said specifically that Facebook would would remove content or suppress content, even if it was true, but if it hurt the vaccine rollout, okay? This is... Right, now, remember, remember, Patrick, the, the, the language for the online safety bill, um, it says uh, absolutely that um, companies, whether they're United States-based companies, European-based companies, anywhere in the world, if the legislation, if the legislation is going to say that if those companies are providing content to a largely to a British audience, it doesn't matter whether they're also providing providing content to other audiences around the world. If they if they uh, provide content to a British audience, that legislation will apply to them, and this framework is going to be rolled out right across the world. That's a global framework. Yes. So what do you need, Mike, to apply governance to a global? framework you like this. You need global governance. You need global governments. You need a global government. And that's exactly where this is headed. Mm. Okay. So don't think that it's not going to happen and don't think they don't have the money to do it because what does a global government need uh, in order to fill its coffers? A uh, tax. A global tax. And what are they doing at the moment? What was the G7 talking and about? And the G20 more recently. And the G20, a global taxation regime. So every, all the signals are very clear that certain nations are running point on the formation, the embryonic formation of a new uh, global governance stroke government uh, body. Okay, And so censorship is going to be at the very top of their priority list constantly because they cannot have any challenges to at the official narratives on any of these things. So anyway, well, let's go a little bit deeper into this. You won't believe this one. And so there's the Dwarf King there. We've just, sorry, we've cut off part of his face there, Anthony Fauci. So potentially a death sentence. White House goes off on vaccine fear mongers. So again, anybody who's got questions about the emergency use authorization, uh, experimental unlicensed vaccine, they're fear mongers. Look at this. Biden allied groups, including the Democratic National Committee, are also planning to engage fact checkers more aggressively and work with, get this, SMS carriers to dispel misinformation sent over text messages. So they're going to be attacking the mobile phone network and making sure that everybody's text message is read, understood, and suitably censored. And you'll be profiled if there's any misinformation, which they call coming on your SMS text messages don't think they won't be keeping the data and profiling individual users. So what will this be? You'll either, you won't get the message, Mike, or will it come with some kind of a warning on it and a link to Wikipedia's COVID page mm -hmm. saying, if you need a, in, proper information, go to the proper sources there. I mean, this is getting Orwellian, but hey, this is par for the course in China, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, you might not live in China, but you're going to get the Chinese 
level of systems, of authoritarian systems, if you allow your governments to keep going in this direction. And, but check this out. It gets even more interesting. Look at this. We are steadfastly committed to keeping politics out of the effort. <laughs> they just said the DNC is involved in this. So they, but they still want to keep politics out of the effort to get every American vaccinated so that we can save lives and help our economy recover further. <laughs> Says White House spokesperson Kevin uh, Munoz. Okay, so it's all about you got to get vaccinated or the, re- the economy won't recover. How about that, Mike? But uh, look at this. So when we see deliberate efforts to spread misinformation, we view that as an impediment on the country's public health and will not shy away from calling that out. And so who's who's running point on this campaign right now? It is none other than Dr. Fauci uh, himself. And so, ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your hats because you won't believe what Fauci is saying right now. Listen to this. You know that children under the age of 12 who are not eligible for the vaccines generally do not get uh, sick, don't get COVID or don't get as ill with it. But what does this spread of the Delta variant mean for them, for the children under the age of 12? And what's the timeline for when they might become eligible? Well, a a couple of questions. And the answers are the children who are not able to get vaccinated because of their age should follow, their parents should follow with them, the guidelines of the CDC that unvaccinated children of a certain age, greater than two years old, should be wearing masks. No doubt about that. That's the way to protect them from getting infected because if they do, they can then spread the infection to someone else. So the CDC guidelines for unvaccinated people, including children, are not changed at all. We are currently doing, we being the federal government together in collaboration with the pharmaceutical companies, age de-escalation studies, namely looking at the safety and the immunogenicity of vaccines in children from 12 to 9 years old, then from 9 to 6, then from 6 to 2 years old, and then ultimately from 6 months to 2 years old. Those data will likely be available by the end of the year, and then it will be up to the FDA to decide when they will make a recommendation that, in fact, this could be done in the sense of vaccinating children of that age. Just before you comment on that, Patrick, can I just make the point that that, that again is exactly the same policy that we have in this country. Uh, the decision, so he's saying the FDA will make a decision on whether children are going to wear, whether and when they're going to be vaccinated in this country. It's the JCVI will make that decision. So. So, you know, his counterpart in the UK isn't going to make that decision, somebody else. It's, it's just amazing how these policies seem to cross borders the way they do. And no politician will make that decision, right? right. They're always deferring to these experts and these science committees. And right. all. so this is effectively uh, a coup d'etat. Age-restrictive studies. So basically, they're going to do some, you know, fiddling of the numbers about children. And he's saying that... Uh, Children uh, are, are infectious, and they will spread asymptomatically without knowing it. Fauci himself, we showed you on this program, at the beginning of the pandemic, said that uh, asymptomatic spreads do not drive epidemics. Of course, he's done a U-turn and created some new science on this, and we showed you the peer-reviewed papers. So imagine that. Children of two, three, four years old must wear a mask. 
if they aren't vaccinated. This is coming from the CDC. I think it's safe to say that the CDC has lost touch with reality. And they're in the, fant- the, the science fiction fantasy world of modern virology mm. right now. And who knows if they're ever going to come up for air, okay? Because this is just getting more farcical uh, by, by the day. So we looked at who's, who's running this program uh, in the White House, Mike. So uh, let's take a look at this. The COVID, COVID Collaborative. The COVID Collaborative. So this is a new kind of, you know, Quango-type organization coming out of the White House co-founded by none other than George W. Bush and John Bridgeland. So that's a neocon Republican there on the left, Mike. And then John Bridgeland, he's a hardcore Obama cabinet insider guy, okay? Oh, well, these don't seem to be uh, politically aligned. Absolutely not. But hey, two parties, same agenda, right? Just like your T-shirt at the UK Column store, which you can also pick up with your old normal T-shirt Check that out at the UK Column store. Shameless plug there, Mike. But look at who is John Bridgeland? Who is John Bridgeland? He's a very interesting character. He is heading the COVID, COVID collaborative. And so he, on the alleged wave of misinformation, this is what John's saying. It's completely illogical and it's potentially a death sentence. So he's saying that if you question any of the official diktats or pharmaceutical statements, that that's a potential death sentence Mm -hmm. for society. And he goes on here, uh, it's being coordinated by people who have platforms and have an an interest in bringing down the current Biden administration. So this this smacks of Hillary Clinton's vast right-wing conspiracy Mm -hmm. uh, statement, you know, so totally from a political point of view, they're pushing this. But then they're saying that there shouldn't be any politics on the issue of getting Americans vaccinated, of course, they don't want to talk about Americans who don't want to be vaccinated with the current experimental jab, the gene-based uh, mRNA jab, uh, to be more precise. But let's take a look at his bio. And so we went over to the COVID collaborative. There's John Bridgeland. I want to bring this up because this is very important. Look at this. Interesting CV. Vice Chairman of Service Year Alliance, Civilian National Service counterpart to the military service. This is something that Obama was pushing really hard during his eight years. Is this some kind of citizenship kind of exercise here? Yeah, rather than doing your military service that you're working for uh, the government's new sort of civilian national volunteer force or community organizing force or whatever you want to call it. A lot of people say it smacks of brown shirts. But look at this. So President Obama appointed Bridgeland is the White House Council for Community Solutions. So the top community organizer. So very much in, you know, so I don't know, I don't want to get into political designations here, but you can draw your own communitarian community organizer, draw your own conclusions Mm. as to where you think that's headed. So in Bridgeland, and by the way, so he said uh, that his group already has seen a shift on the ground. This is interesting, Mike, uh, with people shutting doors Uh, in their faces, he's talking about the door-to-door Biden teams, because they don't want to get vaccinated. His biggest concern is that these lies convince communities who are already wary of vaccines, creating sex, he's using the term, creating sex of the country, like sect, he's talking like like cult sex, he's he's inferring there, Uh, sex of the country where the virus just bounces among the unvaccinated. So again, making up the science so they have their own version of science when it comes to vaccines, and it 
it basically flies in the face of hundreds of years of official uh, received wisdom in terms of science and medicine. Mm. So with COVID, a whole new range of scientific beliefs, which change daily, uh, are somehow acceptable and are going to be regulated by the government, by the White House, by government agencies, by Facebook, by Twitter, uh, who, who keep track of this ever-changing, daily, evolving science. Uh, so forget about your textbooks if you're studying medicine. doesn't matter. Uh, with regards to the history of vaccines, none of that matters. Okay, We have a new virus now that, that, that mutates into endless variants and endless waves. And trust us, it's really happening. Uh, and so you know, we'll keep it all locked down, like they are in Australia. Victoria State has right. gone into lockdown once again. So as an example, it's just insane. Okay, let's come back to the UK then. And uh, well, prisons and uh, this uh, build this building site is uh, certainly uh, garnering a lot of attention at the moment. Uh, the X blocks, we might call them. There, what are the one, two, three, four, five, seven of them? Uh, and uh, well, this is a new prison being built. Uh, and uh, let's have a look at who's building it. Well, it is uh, Keir. Uh, this is H M Prison Five Wells. This is what it's going to look like. It's uh, really attractive, isn't it, Patrick? Looks like a council estate in southeast London. That's shocking. So, uh, th what does it say? HMP Five Wells will be an adult male category C resettlement prison uh, designed to um, to enhance rehabilitation. So, uh, the term resettlement is certainly causing uh, problems with some people. But uh, let's uh, have a look at what is going on here. Let's look at what the uh, Prison Service says about Category C prisons, these prisons are training and resettlement prisons. Uh, most prisoners are uh, located in Category C. They provide prisoners with the opportunity to develop their own skills so they can find work and resettle back into the community on release. Right, okay, so that's what it's about. And uh, of course, the government uh, had already announced that they were building four new prisons, uh, at the, which was hard of the, at the heart of the government's commitment to 10,000 additional prison places. Two in the north, two in the south, supporting local economies and the construction industry with thousands of jobs. Uh, buildings uh, will use new technology and modern methods of construction. Uh, and the first new jail to be built will be uh, HMP Full Sutton in East Yorkshire. And they, they've got the three others as well. But in addition to those four new prisons, construction is well underway in Wellingborough uh, for this uh, prison that we're talking about today. Uh, and the works have started at uh, Glen Parva, Leicestershire, to create two new 1,680-place Category C resettlement prisons. Um, but I just thought that was uh, really interesting language, calling them training and resettlement uh, prisons, Patrick, because, of course, we've heard this kind of language before, or at least within the last several months. Uh, here's an example of it. Uh, the BBC, China Uyghurs, Xinjiang, uh, legalizes re-education camps. Uh, but officials attending UN human rights meeting admitted that Uyghurs deceived by religious extremism were undergoing re-education and resettlement. Oh, shock horror. Uh, so can you explain what the difference is? Right. So if China does it, we have to uh, sanction them and uh, threaten them and get on war footing and all sorts of condemnations. But resettlement. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, what does it mean? Is, is, is it? Is it uh, something to be uh, shocked about, or is this actually uh, a term that exists already in the language? It's a term that exists services. already in the language of the prison service. And if anybody's wondering why the prisons are being built, well, here is the uh, uh, the all select 
the Select Committee uh, for uh, the Public Accounts Committee, sorry, and uh, they're saying that the Ministry of Justice and HM Prison and Probation System have failed in their attempts to improve the condition and suitability of the prison estate, despite promises to create 10,000 new for all prison places by 2020. Just 206 new places have been delivered so far. So this is published in September last year, and that's what this prison and the others are about. It's uh, the fact that, uh, well, we've been hearing headlines of, and including from uh, the various uh, prisoner support organisations about the overcrowding situation in British prisons. Uh, that's what that's what's happening here. They're, they're building new spaces. Well, moving on to uh, a different agenda, Mike. Uh, the Green New Deal is uh, picking up steam here. Uh, this is over in Europe here, and uh, there is Darth Helmet and Greta Thunberg there. And notice that Ursula von der Leyen, she is the head of the EU Commission, if I'm not mistaken. She's the president of the European Commission. She's yes. the president. That's an elected position, isn't it, Mike? Uh, no, just like all the other European uh, presidents, it's not. It's an appointed position, yes. right? So, and mind you, she is the same height, actually, as Greta Thunberg. So nothing to say about her eight-inch heels uh, in this particular photograph. But let's look at what they're pushing here in terms of the Green New Deal. This is from the Washington Post. This is their newsletter that goes out daily to today's worldview. Europe's climate plans could mean friction with the U.S. Now it's getting interesting. There she is. Why do we have Greta up there? Well, because Greta will probably be running this agenda in no time soon. So the unelected European Commission announced ambitious plans. Tax jet fuel, ban the sale of gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles in the next two decades, increase the use of renewables, and get this, raise funds to help lower-income households as national economies accelerate their transition off fossil fuels. So they're saying they're going to raise money to help the poor uh, to cope with the increased cost of this new Green New Deal Great Reset agenda. Right. So do you really think that's going to happen, or are they just going to subsidize heat pumps for some big corporation that's going to get the contract? To I think you've got it. Neil hit on the head right supply there. Supply it all. So let's listen to Ursula, what she has to say here about the Green New Deal. This is the agenda she's rolling out. Amazing. Listen to this. We should always keep in mind roughly one third of next generation EU and the European budget will support green projects, sustainable projects all over Europe. This is more than 500 billion euros at the European level alone. Then you have to add the national provisions in the national budgets. And this all gives, and we feel it already, we see it, certainty and incentives to the private sector so that they complement that, for example, through investing in green bonds that are making our financial system more sustainable. Emission of CO2 must have a price. It must have a price, Patrick. Green bonds. Yes. So again, this is the new green economy. So they're going to drop half a trillion, half a trillion on these green projects. Okay. Are those going to lower the temperature of the Earth's atmosphere? Not by a fraction of one degree. Not maybe not by anything. We'll tell you why in a minute, Mike. But so they're willing to dump all of this money into these green projects. These are going to political allies, politically allied organizations. Anybody that's on the program, that's on the Great Reset program, they're going to get grants, they're going to get funding, they're going to get research grants, their businesses are going to be fully subsidized, whether they succeed or not, and whether all that money gets wasted, I really don't think any of these people care, mm. because this is about a political agenda to push the Great Reset. Now back to the Washington Post here, look at this, 
the most politically loaded element, and here's the kicker of all of this, Mike, will be the creation of carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which would impose tariffs on some goods imported from non-EU countries with weaker climate laws. So if you want to take a, a sovereign decision that you don't buy any of this stuff and you want to pursue your own economic policy, uh, you will not be allowed to trade with EU countries anymore. Effectively, this is like a, a reverse sanction, Mike. So you'll be sanctioned uh, by, by, by fiat, basically. Mm -hmm. De facto sanctions here. So that's important. Climate carbon borders. Climate carbon borders. Add that to vaccine uh, borders as well. And it goes on in practice. Environmental groups hope this will become a powerful incentive for other nations to follow the bloc's policy. So this is how the EU works like a cartel mm -hmm. uh, in, in order to get access to the common market, the biggest single uh, trading market in the world. You have to normalize your own domestic policies to align with Europe's. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to be a member of the EU or not, I'm not even talking about the Eastern European countries mm -hmm. that want to be in like Ukraine. We're talking about African countries, South American countries, North American countries. And there's some pushback from North America, funny enough, from the woke Biden administration on this. So Biden administration has pushed against this proposed carbon tax on imports. So the White House could take a page from Trump's trade playbook, believe it or not, and impose its own retaliatory tariffs. Or it could seek a challenge to the EU's move by resurrecting the World Trade Organization's hobbled dispute resolution body. So we're, we're turning the page back, Mike, aren't we, a little bit on this with this trade war. So Biden's morphing into Trump right before our eyes. Well, isn't this all of the things that Trump basically was saying and pursuing as well, you know, taking that tough line against Europe on the Green New Deal, and here's Biden doing it as well. You won't see anybody from CNN really giving any serious time to this or any of the mainstream media uh, organizations, although so I, at least near, uh, the Washington Post is, has reported on it here, Mike. But so this is the Dutch MEP here, uh, Bas Eichhout, and this is what he has to say to the United States. To the U.S., I would say, if you are so worried, then maybe it's time that you come forward with very credible plans to decarbonize your economy, says the Dutch Green Party MEP. So, uh, you know, a powerful voice in Dutch green politics there, sitting at the powerful European Parliament, yeah. where all those lawmakers yeah. sit around and do what exactly? They Nothing. make speeches and yeah. things like this. So, uh, but now, so here's here's some pushback and a great article op-ed by the the Wall Street Journal on this. So, in terms of uh, here come the climate protectionists, Europe starting a, a, a war on CO2 tariffs. Western politicians have failed to persuade their own voters to commit to economic suicide by banning fossil fuels for, and forget about China, Russia, and India. The climate lobbies fall back which is starting to emerge, is to punish foreigners and their own consumers with climate tariffs. So this is where we're heading, Mike, in terms of trade wars, climate change wars. So whether you believe in climate change or not, you're going to have to fight this, this war. So the climate tariff is a tacit admission that Western elites have not convinced their voters to pay the price of their climate obsessions. Uh, I probably am going to agree with that. And in the process, they're, forced, they're forcing their consumers to pay more for imports and domestic goods, uh, and they'll harm their own exporters if countries retaliate. And so we talked about the, the cost of all this 
with all the, the, the pork from the EU, with the trade wars, Mike, uh, Bjorn Lomborg uh, is an economist uh, from, uh, from Denmark. And so he's got a lot to say about this. His whole career has been about this false alarm, how climate change panic has cost us trillions, hurts the poor. And he says, if you want to lower the Earth's temperature, um, you, you can't do it through these policies. You can't do it by bankrupting first world countries, developed countries. You can't do it. So there's a, a point people to this lecture here uh, where he breaks this down. This is up at 21stCenturyWire.com. Just Google that headline. And Bjorn, Bjorn Lomborg just breaks it down so beautifully uh, as to why this is bad policy, Mike. So, and, and again, while this is happening, while this climate uh, uh, it, uh, U.S. Uh, EU summit and deals are being argued over. We're seeing a wave of this in the mainstream media, displaced by climate, climate refugees. Sky is a horrible culprit in terms of propaganda on this front. And this week here, Belgium floods have uh, hit. And, you know, you see images across the media today, Mike, of people suffering from flooding in Belgium. Here, look at this wildfires blazing across the U.S. So this is the Guardian. They love to push the climate crisis. So that, that's the backdrop, Mike, to, to, to these climate change uh, taxation uh, efforts by these big organizations like the EU, is then all the fear of sort of extreme weather then comes pumping through the media. So this is like a two, three-pronged approach by the mainstream media establishment and by the political bodies and by Davos and the World Economic Forum crowd is they're pumping the propaganda, the fear of the you know climate emergency. What are we going to do about all of this uh, extreme weather, tornadoes, fires, floods? And really, when you drill down, the flooding is on a local level in a few specific places. Their flooding happens. It happens around the world. In fact, it's it's been happening for centuries. But they could have paid for all. Last thing I'll say, they could have paid for all the flooding mitigation required to have foolproof flooding protection on every country in the world for maybe 1% of what they have blown on COVID in the last 16 months. The amount of money they've dropped on coronavirus, they could have paid for all of the flooding mm -hmm. and climate mitigation engineering projects needed globally, okay? And that would save the, save the lives that Greta is so worried about uh, in the poor countries like Africa. Yes, indeed. Right. Well, speaking of uh, war footing, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, this is uh, well an exclusive apparently in the uh, in the uh, in the Guardian. Kremlin papers appear to show Putin's plot to put Trump in the White House. They're trying to re-inject uh, momentum back into the Russiagate narrative. It is unbelievable. Look at Patrick. the author, Mike. Is that none other than who? It is Mr. Luke Harding. Luke Harding, the the original author of the Russiagate fiction. Okay, Sorry. so he has come back out of his box. Um, so two top secret documents which suggest that Vladimir Putin, with his spy chiefs and senior ministers all present, uh, signed a decree ordering Russian agencies to do everything they could to get Donald Trump in elected. Uh, so uh, the Western intelligence agencies, according to this article, were understood to have carefully examined the alleged Kremlin documents. <laughs> Uh, and the uh, author appears to be, well, who knows? Uh, the papers seem to be represent to represent a serious leak 
Uh, they appear to be genuine. Putin has repeatedly denied accusations of interfering in Western democracy. The documents seem to contradict this claim. They claim the president, his spy officers and senior ministers were all intimately involved in one of the most important and audacious espionage op operations of the 21st century, a plot to help out uh, the mentally unstable Trump in the White House is what it says in this article. Um, and uh, well, not surprisingly, Dmitry Peskov uh, has said that this is a great pulp fiction. Um, and uh, well, there you go, Luke Harding, but let's also, let's just remind ourselves, I'm not gonna go into detail on this, but let's just all remind ourselves who are the key people that were involved in pushing this nonsense from the start. Christopher Steele, of course, former MI6, uh, Richard Dearlove, uh, Joseph Mifsud and so on. You can see them on screen. And they framed George Papadopoulos at the bottom uh, right there in order to sort of get the whole FBI investigation rolling on the back of a, a, a sort of fake setup. That's right. And, uh, and let's not forget that two of the key people in that uh, exercise were also key people in the Skripal affair uh, because um, they were involved in that as well. Interesting. Uh, and uh, let's not forget that uh, one of those key people, Richard Dearlove, is also um, pushing the China narrative, the China virus narrative as hard as he possibly can and has been since June last year. So, you know, you can't, you, you've got to say that uh, correlation doesn't equal causation, but coincidences when they're when there's this sort of level of coincidence, you've got to start asking some questions. Yeah, he's really pushing the uh, the, the lab leak or the China virus thing pretty pretty hard there. So I don't know, do we still have that uh, GB news? Oh, we're getting to that, okay. don't panic. Uh, we're getting to that. I want to cover inflation first. So uh, Bank of England must spell out the risks of quantitative easing, says Lord's report. This is from uh, the Lord's uh, Economic Affairs Committee. Uh, and uh, this includes an ex-Bank of England governor, Mervyn King, but nonetheless, uh, they're talking about the threat of QE leading to higher inflation and causing damage to the finances of the government. Uh, they're saying that uh, in the course of their inquiry, it has become apparent that the Bank of England was widely perceived to be using quantitative easing to finance the government's record peacetime budget deficit during the pandemic. The bank's bond purchases were aligned closely with the speed of issuance by uh, HM Treasury. If perceptions continue to grow that the bank is uh, using QE mainly to finance the government's spending priorities, it could lose credibility, destroying its ability to control inflation uh, and maintain financial stability. Let's have a look at uh, what um, the uh, what Lord Forsyth, uh, who's uh, from the Lord's Economic Affairs Committee, said. The Bank of England has become addicted to quantitative easing. It appears to be its answer to all the country's economic problems. And by the end of 2021, the bank will own an eye-watering £875 billion of government bonds and £20 billion of corporate bonds. Uh, Michael Saunders from the Bank of England then spoke up because uh, the, the, obviously they had to uh, write a reply here. Uh, in my view, he said, if activity and inflation indicators remain in line with recent trends and downside risks to the growth and inflation do not rise significantly, then it may become appropriate fairly soon to withdraw some of the current monetary policy stimulus in order to return inflation to the 2% target on a sustained basis. Now, this, of course, goes against uh, what the current governor of the Bank of England said, uh, who basically said there was no real limit to the amount of quantitative easing that uh, could be implemented. So it's like the Federal Reserve now. It, oh, they're, they're, they're absolutely uh, on par with the Federal Reserve. Price pressures, he says, in global manufacturing goods reflect, at least in part, strong global demand for goods, including consumer goods, ICT, and plant and machinery investment. He said these price pressures may well have some persistent effects on the UK's CPI, 
inflation, particularly because of lags in the pass through to consumer prices, but also because the underlying strength of demand for manufacture, manufactured goods may prove persistent. Uh, he didn't say anything about the fact that actually the complete supply chain uh, is in a state of absolute collapse at the moment, that there's also a demand problem here as well that's driving prices up because if you don't have availability of goods, then obviously you've got to pay more for them. So this, the real physical economy is ignored once again by Michael Saunders from the Bank of England as they completely only think about stupid bits of paper and, and ones and zeros on a page, on a, on a computer screen. Because they want the physical economy to disappear. This is why they're, they're, they're pretending it doesn't exist. That's absolutely correct. They've already written it off. I think that's pretty clear by the policies and the monetary policies. Well, they've, they've made it clear that if you don't have the right kind of physical economy, the Great Reset physical economy, then it's going to go bankrupt. They are driving the policies that are making this happen. That's um, going to have a pretty serious implications for everybody, um, and not least with respect to food production, because that's a very big part of this. But anyway, you mentioned GB News. So let's just end with that. So. GB News. This is this. They launched what a couple of a uh, couple a month ago or yeah. something like that. Yes. To great fanfare, and this was going to be sort of redefine. The, the UK media, mainstream media landscape, right? They were going to also take it to the anti-woke here. Uh, there's the team photo, Mike, but it might as well be the Last Supper uh, photo there. There's Andrew Neil in the middle, surrounded by a lot of uh, interesting characters, uh, a motley crew, as it were. But so, so what happened with GB News, Mike? I mean, the ratings, according to those reports, have gone to zero, practically. So, like, nobody's watching it. Uh, the programming is full of gaffes and bloopers and stuff like that. And, and apparently they're fighting the woke agenda. That was Andrew Neal's whole shtick. Well, that, that's the problem because they took that position at the beginning. Then people had certain expectations. Uh, I'm not sure whether the, the, the zero ratings are going to be a long-term thing or not. Certainly there has been a protest. Uh, and why? Well, because of, uh, because of this, uh, GB News has had to apologize after Good O'Harry uh, took the knee, uh, and you can see him doing that right now. Now, this was apparently live uh, on air, live on air, apparently in, in solidarity with the uh, English football team. Um, but nonetheless, this has not gone down well with uh, GB News watchers. Not only that, I, I really don't even think it's this, Mike. It is it's one of the most boring uh, television endeavors you could possibly imagine. I mean, didn't someone say uh, when they first launched that? On this program, we had a quote. Some, someone said Andrew Neil wouldn't last for three months or something like that before he would be shipped away. I think they used Andrew Neil to raise the seed money for this project. I mean, from Discovery Channel's group, I think they raised something like forty-five million uh, pounds or something like that. So, I mean, he's a big name from the BBC. He's a marquee guy. He, he fronts the project, brings the money in, but. What does Andrew Neil know about running a television network? Has has he ever run a television network? No, before? no, this is this is fair point. I mean, there are there are a couple of interesting people uh, presenting on on GB News, but I mean, who's Good O'Harry? For goodness sake, he's four, what is it? Fourteen years, I think he was a BBC journalist. So you know, a lot if, of them are if, -BBC. You're, if you're bringing ex BBC people into GB News, including Andrew Neil, what do you expect to get at the end of the day? BBC Light, right? So that's kind of what it's turned out to be. I'm afraid that is the case. Yeah. Yes. So I don't know how long are they going to be around, or unless somebody comes and buys them for a quid, and then Piers Morgan has a new home. What do you think? Uh, I think you've suggested that before, and I think that's a very valid um, suggestion. It could happen. Could, it happen. could happen. Anyway, hopefully they'll shape things up at uh, the old GB News there. Maybe another 45 million. They need more money. Yes.
So yeah. Okay. Well, look, we we shall leave it there for today. Apologies for the technical problems earlier in the pro program. Thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time, one p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great week, and and we will see you then. Bye bye. <laughs>